If you'd like to take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We'll uh, look at the first 14 verses this morning. By way of, of preface, okay, this is not the introduction, this is preface, so this doesn't count for time against. Um, I know there's different ways we can approach the Gospels and different ways people do. We can try to fit them all together, all four voices together, and make them see what, how they all compare. Or we can just take the gospel as, as it is, and that's what I'll basically be doing this morning. Even though Mark gives essentially the same account, and John gives an account that has quite a few different details, we're focusing on, on Matthew, um, maybe just including one little detail from Mark, but we're looking at, at the gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Back in the olden days, the before times, when people wanted to watch a movie, they would have to go to a store. And movies used to be on these things, kids. They're called video cassette tapes. And you went to a store called Blockbuster Video, right? This is, this is what your Friday night was. You'd bug your dad after you got home from work, dad. We go to Blockbuster to get a movie. And back in the day, there were 9,000 Blockbusters in the United States. That's almost, that's in the year 2000. That's almost as many McDonald's as there were. That's, that's how big it was. You know, sometimes we, we tend to miss things as people, right? We just, we just, we, we misread things or we just don't understand what is really happening. And in the year 2000, when there were 9,000 Blockbuster stores, Blockbuster was worth $3 billion. Every year, every year, Blockbuster made $800 million from late fees. Just late fees. People bringing their videos back late. $800 million a year. And in the year 2000, there's this, this other little rinky-dink company called Netflix. And Netflix had this, had this little bit different business model, right? They had, now, they had advanced by then to DVDs, and, and we're pretty familiar with DVDs. And Netflix, you would send for a DVD, and they would send you a DVD in the mail. You'd watch it, and you'd send it back, and you could request more. So it's a little bit easier because you didn't have to go all the way down the road to Blockbuster, a little bit more convenient. And they had this vision, even to advance it still, to like just to be able to watch things on the internet. But back in those times, the internet was on this thing called the telephone. <laughs> and a telephone was a thing that you would, you would use and you would call people with and you would talk to them. That's what telephones were back in those times. And, and Netflix just, it wasn't working. The business model, they had good plans, but it just wasn't working. So they went to Blockbuster and they said, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's what we'd like to do in the future, but the technology just isn't there. We'll sell you our entire company, our idea. We'll sell you it for the whole shebang for $50 million. Blockbuster Video made $800 million a year just on late fees. Their 
CEO, John Antioco, had to control himself from laughing during the meeting. He didn't even make a counteroffer, believing that online businesses were just simply not sustainable. Oops. <laughs> that decision was the beginning of the end for Blockbuster. Facing competition from an ever-evolving and improving Netflix, as well as companies like Redbox, Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy just 10 years later. And now if you want to go to a Blockbuster, you have to go to Oregon, where there is one, and it is now a, an Airbnb. You can just rent it out for nostalgia's sake. Meanwhile, Netflix became what you know Netflix as now today, the movie streaming juggernaut that makes $25 billion a year in 2020. We tend to miss things, and we see that in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there is an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are flesh. We are dust. And you remember our frame and what we are, or we are prone to miss things. Father, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see what your word says to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew is winding things down. In verse 1, he says, And Jesus had finished all these sayings, which is sort of a, a key phrase in Matthew that he uses five different times throughout the gospel to indicate we're moving, we're moving, we're moving, and this is the last time. Now Jesus is, is done teaching. It's time to accomplish what he has come to do. And we see where we are generally within the time frame. Two days before the Passover. Now the Jews, of course, they reckon time a little bit differently than we do. Their day began in the evening of the previous day. So this, this could be Tuesday night, which would be 
to them Wednesday when Matthew is setting the stage for us. And the Passover is coming. The high, the holy day that we've been talking about in Sunday school the past several weeks. But this time, this Passover, the firstborn son will not be spared. And they are in the house in the different scene of Simon the leper. Another way that I think Matthew is indicating that he's tying everything together. Because in Matthew, the very first miracle that Jesus performs is, is cleansing a leper. And now here, as Matthew points us to the end, they are again with a leper. Now, obviously, it's, it's pretty much taken for granted that he is no longer a leper because lepers don't have people over for dinner. Uh, this was even worse than COVID-19. You know, you, you socially, this is real social distancing. So this was likely a leper that Jesus had healed. Um, leprosy didn't tend to just go away, although it could. There were various things called leprosy, that, and some did go away. But it seems likely that this is a leper that Jesus has healed in the past. And now, at the end, in the final week, two days before Passover, they are gathered for a meal. But we see in this passage the tendency of men to miss things. In verses 3 and 4, Caiaphas, the chief priest, and the religious leaders are gathered together. They've, they've had it. Enough of this Jesus. Enough of this troublemaking. Enough of this threat to us. We need to do something about him. And we will do something about him. Now is the time we need to figure out what we're going to do. We just can't do it right now because everybody's here. And if we do it now, it's going to cause an uproar. So they, they start their planning, but they figure, well, we're going to have to wait till after Passover. Because if we do it before Passover, we do it now, it's going to draw attention. And everybody's here. All these Galileans are here visiting. It's, it's just going to be too much trouble. So the leaders thought that they were in control of things. And they say, well, after Passover, we'll take care of this. We have the interlude, which we'll come back to. And then in verse 14, lo and behold, another man with a name, Judas Iscariot, comes to the leaders. You know what? I've had it too. I'll give you Jesus. Let's, let's figure this out together. And this is like serendipity for the leaders, for the religious leaders. What? We thought we were going to put this off for a while, but now we've got one of the 12 coming to us saying that, that we can work this out? So the leaders thought that they were going to change things. Judas thought he was going to change things. They thought they were in control. Right? I've got this situation all figured out. But how does the passage introduced? Jesus saying, in two days, this is going to happen. Who's the one in control? Jesus is the one in control. I'm in control of what is happening here. The nation's rage, 
and the people are plotting in vain. Kings are setting themselves and rulers are taking counsel together. But the Lord is sitting over all. The Lord is holding them in derision. Their very acts of, of rebellion, their very acts of treachery will be their own breaking. In their uprising, they are dashed to pieces like vessels in the potter's field. The men, these named men, Caiaphas, the high priest, Judas, one of the 12 closest to this great rabbi and popular figure, Jesus, are not the only ones to misread history. Matthew gives subtle commentary on who the real central figures in life's drama really are. On the edges of our passage, verses 3 and 4 and verses 14 and 15, we have this, these named men, Caiaphas and Judas. But in the middle, we have the one person who is really reading things correctly. We have the one person who knew what was going on and knew how to respond Men, named men, thought they were in charge and they were moving the wheels of history. Important men, men with authority. But in the middle, there is what? A woman. A woman. Caiaphas and Judas thought they were changing history. An unnamed woman was the one who knew what was going on. An unnamed woman a woman, this woman, the woman, sees Jesus and knows what is happening. Unlike Caiaphas, she rejoices that Jesus is coming to establish a kingdom of God and not a kingdom of man. Unlike Judas, she rejoices that Jesus comes to overthrow Rome's rule, not by sword and might, but by mercy and right. Caiaphas is worried about his power, Judas about his pocket, and here's a woman. But there in the middle, we also see that, that, that the plotters and the tyrants, the traitors and the rulers are not the only ones prone to misreading events around them. Who else misses it? A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. The disciples completely missed it. Now, were they way off base? They had good reason to be concerned for the poor. First of all, they were here at Passover. And traditionally, the Jews had a tradition that, that when you come together for the three great feasts, you also bring offerings for the poor. And there's a good reason for this. Because Deuteronomy 15.11, which happens to say you will always have the poor, is immediately followed by Deuteronomy 16, which is instructions for the Passover. So in their upbringing, the very way they knew God's will, Deuteronomy 15, here's how you care for the poor. Deuteronomy 16, celebrate Passover. It was together for them. 
They had good reason to care about the poor. It wasn't like this was out of the blue. Jesus, in the very first sermon that he gives in the book of Matthew, says, give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus, in Matthew 19, 21, says, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. The words were fresh in their ears. You just have to look up your page or maybe turn back your page to Matthew 25, verses 35 through 40. The familiar parable of the sheep and the goats. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Verse 35. I was a stranger and you took me, you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it to me. And of course, in outside of Matthew, there's Luke and other passages that talk about the love that, that we have for the poor, the concern that we have for the poor. But what was Jesus' evaluation of this woman's act? Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing, or literally a good work for me. There are three reasons why the disciples should not trouble her. Because of the nobility of her deed, verse 10. She has done a, a good work. Verse 11, because of the constancy of the poor. You're always going to have the poor with you, right? There's no act that's going to get rid of the poor. Even 2,000 years ago, Mark tells us that this was worth about a year's salary. This ointment that she poured out was worth a year's salary, basically. But even 2,000 years ago, there's only so much that a year's salary is going to do. It, guess what? It's going to be spent, and there's still going to be poor people. But then also finally in verse 12, the reason why they should not trouble her, <clears throat> because in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. She recognizes what is going on. She hears Jesus when he says, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. She knows what that means. If you are crucified, you will be dead. And if you are crucified, your body is trash. You are cursed because you're hang, hung on a tree. The Romans are going to care for you because they're the ones that put you there. The Jews are going to care for you because you're cursed. And so she takes this opportunity to pour out, to break this alabaster, this stone bottle, and pour out a year's salary worth of ointment to anoint his body for burial. But the disciples were indignant. They missed it completely. And I believe that they fell into a temptation that is perpetually present for us 
for God's people always. What a waste! What about the poor? Right? And you thought virtue signaling began with Twitter. No, it's here already. The disciples let their cause eclipse Christ. Their cause, their was bigger than Jesus. The virtue of every action was judged by how much or how little it helped the cause. You spent $6 for a cup of coffee? Don't you know how many meals for children in Africa that would buy? You're wearing $150 jeans? People in Ukraine have lost everything. A gender reveal? Who do you think you are imposing your gender on that baby? Math is racist. If you don't care about what I care about, you don't really care about Jesus. Look at the irony. You must not love God because you're not caring for the poor. As she poured out the most valuable thing she had on Jesus. She doesn't care about God. She doesn't care for the poor. This virtue by blunt force. If you're not in line with this, this seeing everything through the eyes of your cause, whether it's social justice or the poor or sexual oppression, closes your eyes to what is really there. Virtue by blunt force is exhausting because guess what? The poor are always going to be here. And if you live by your cause, you will always have reason to be outraged. You will burn yourself out and turn off those around you. Virtue by blunt force is judgmental. It is graceless. They are evaluating this deed of this woman through the lens of poverty relief instead of what is really happening here. In a few weeks, Lord willing, we'll, we will hear from Romans 14 where Paul says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, should we care for the poor? Obviously, Jesus teaches that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Can we use religion as a cloak for sin? Right? No. In Matthew 15, 3 through 6, Jesus brings this very thing up, how the Jews are supposed to care for their parents. But what did they do? They, well, sorry, Mom and Dad, I can't take care of you. This money is devoted to God. Right, kids? When your parents ask you today to help with the dishes or, or the laundry, you can oh, sorry, Mom, I, I just feel the Lord is really leading me to spend time in prayer and reading the Bible. <laughs> no, the Lord is really leading you to obey your mom and dad. We, we can't use religion as a cloak for not doing what we're supposed to do. But this 
this isn't the first time something like this has happened. It's not even like, it's not even the first time something like this has happened in Bethany where it happened. Do you remember another time when Jesus came to a supper in Bethany and somebody got upset? Lord, don't you see all that I'm doing for you? Aren't you going to say something to Mary who's just sitting there listening to you teach? Martha. Martha. Why do you trouble the woman? One thing is necessary. The poor you will always have with you. But they missed it. Jesus is worth supreme love. The woman loved Jesus above all others. Right? In pouring out this vessel of ointment, this woman was not going to be able to use it for her mom, for her dad, or for her husband, or for her child. But she gave it to Jesus. She said, you know who needs what I have more than anybody else? Jesus. Were the disciples correct that this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor? Yes, that's true. But they were wrong in that it was counting it as, as wasteful. Jesus, this woman shows us that Jesus must be first. We must love Jesus first. More than money, more than mother, more than home, and more than the homeless. She had grasped on to Jesus' saying, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Or if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is worth supreme love, complete love, total love. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the New Testament are we told, love Jesus prudently. I mean, be, be reasonable about how you love Jesus. Don't love him too much. I mean, you've got other things to worry about. Jesus is worth costly love. As already mentioned from Mark, this is worth a year's salary. For the common worker. I realize we all have different salaries that we, that we have here for a year. But median income, so $50,000. And she just pours out $50,000 on Jesus. The disciples call this a waste. Jesus says, no, this is right. I'm here now. This is her chance. He sees in this broken bottle a picture of his own body, which is soon to be broken. The odor of the perfume is not a waste or an extravagance, but is a, a preparation for his burial. And after seeing this waste of a year's salary, Judas 
goes out and betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, a month's salary. Are you willing to love Jesus with, with what is most valuable to you? Because loving Jesus is costly. And this woman loved Jesus for who he said he would, who he said he was. This woman, as, as best she could, put everything together and took Jesus at his word. Whatever else the woman meant to do, she had in fact done for him what his executioners would not do, given him the means of a decent and proper burial. So Jesus' interest was not in his present physical comfort or even his, his messianic status, but in his coming dishonorable death. In two days, I will be delivered to be crucified. And this woman's loyalty, love, offsets the shameful horror and dishonor of the crucifixion. And it is remembered. We remember it today. This prophecy of the woman being remembered is fulfilled today in our ears. Over 2,000 languages the Gospel of Matthew is in. 2,000 languages around the world. Wherever it is read, she is remembered. But this woman's love is not the centerpiece of the story. trying to get you to love Jesus more or to love Jesus with your best or to love Jesus as he is is not the point of this sermon. What is the point of this story? This gospel. This gospel. Let us, let us, find strength here. Not that she loved Jesus, but that Jesus loves you. This gospel. This is the love that, that we must be astounded at. Not that this woman loved Jesus, but that Jesus loved this woman. That Jesus loved these block-headed 12 men around him who just couldn't get it. That Jesus loves us, this gospel. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to shed his own blood for my soul? When I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid, a crown his, laid aside his crown for my soul. This gospel Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? Who can never, he can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. Without this gospel, this would have been a waste. Without this gospel that Jesus Christ came, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and that he rose again from the grave. 
with a mighty triumph over his foes. This would have been a waste. But this love is remembered because of Christ's love. Because Jesus rose again from the grave. This is our comfort. This is our assurance. Not that we can love Jesus enough, but that he loved us enough to do this for us. So all the love that you give him is remembered because it is to him and for him. All the love that you give him, though no one else sees your love, though no one else recognizes your love, Jesus sees, Jesus knows, because Jesus is alive. We have a tendency to misread things. We have a tendency to not understand what is really going on. And if we are not careful, we can waste a lot of time. We can waste a lot of money. We can waste a lot of life on things that simply do not matter. If our devotion to service does not flow out of and from our devotion to the Savior, like the disciples here or Martha and Luke 10, we miss out on the one necessary thing. The one thing that we the one thing that we have to do, falling in love with Jesus because he has completely loved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love of Christ. Lord, we thank you that Jesus gave himself for us. We thank you for the gospel that Jesus Christ rose again, raised, now even ascended to your right hand where he now intercedes for us. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given to us to hear this good news. Lord, we pray that you would indeed open our hearts to love Jesus completely, to love Jesus above all others, to love Jesus with the best that we have, to love Jesus for who he is, our loving Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.